Welcome back. We're back with the No Way Out podcast, episode two. John, always pleasure to see you. You are looking dapper. Thank you, sir. That, uh, that's yeah. a very you know academic word for dapper. Good looking. Yeah. Well dressed. I don't feel like that, but I appreciate that. <laughs> and of course, his Thank head you, of Bryce. hair for a young man of it just looks great. Yeah. And we are Thank privileged you. today to have with us what a what an honor, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Y. Kim. Hello, sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Chaps, Good afternoon, John. sir. <laughs> he is the battalion commander for First Combat Engineer Battalion, and I just wanted to introduce introduce him so he gets the credit that he deserves. He graduated from the Virginia Military Institute in 2004, earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Economics and Business. He's also a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Seminar 21 National Security Fellowship in 2022. So we have an MIT grad among us, John. I mean, wow, this is high-level stuff we're talking about. I, I definitely sport that hoodie. Man, <laughs> you need to. That is some wow. serious street credibility. That's, that's you. you. Yeah, it's amazing. Street cred. It's, it's MIT. I mean, this is... There's no chance they would let me into the NIT. John, you? Not MIT, not, you know me. I, yeah. I'm not getting in. No, John's I'm not, not getting, getting in, in there. Uh, he also was selected to attend resident career level school at the U.S. Army Engineer Captain's Career Course in 2009. Lieutenant Colonel Kim also deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2007 and 2009, Operation Enduring Freedom in 2010 and 2012, and Operation Resolute Support in 2018. He also served as an individual augment to Headquarters U.S. Central Command in 2015, and it goes on and on and on. But more importantly, he is married to Grace Kim from Silver Spring, Maryland, and they have two Lovely daughters, Charlie and Emma. What a pleasure to have you here, sir. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. This is fantastic. The first episode you guys had was was great. I've listened to that like three or four times now. Oh, well, wow. that, well that, that warms our heart. Man. John. Yeah. Because <laughs> John, has, John has such a great calming voice. I think he's yeah. soothing. Oh, I don't know about that. I thought yours was. But that's great, sir. I don't know what uh, resonated for you, but that's fantastic. It was a really compelling story. It was a great kickoff to the podcast. Yeah. Well, sir, with that bio, you know, when we got together thinking about this po podcast, I really thought this is kind of your baby. I mean, you, you, in a way, were talking to me. How do we launch this thing? Could we do this even? And the city of Cerritos came through and purchased this gear. And we're here now, and we're doing it live. And I just wanted to see why, with your priorities of mental, spiritual wellness, why you thought this would be a really good forum to discuss mental, spiritual wellness, character formation, and those types of, of issues, and why that's on your mind right now, sir. Yeah, I, I thought communicating and really listening to our young Marines and sailors was, was important to me um, for majority of my career. We get taught, you know, counsel your Marines, counsel your Marines, talk to your Marines. Uh, what we don't do really well is actually sit down and listen to what their challenges are. As, as small unit leaders or leadership in general, um, we talk to them. We don't listen to them. And so when, you know, the three of us started having these conversations last year about how do we, how do we reach out to these young Marines and sailors who are having legitimate issues. Um, they're growing up in the Marine Corps. How do we communicate to them in a way where they can feel like they are being 
um, heard and understood. And I thought doing this podcast would be just a different type of medium, or just a different way to to communicate with them, because this is obviously this is the this this generation's the digital native, mm-hmm. right? They they yeah. grew up listening to um, podcasts and the internet and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, all those things. So I thought putting together a podcast might might be a f- more effective than what we were doing before. And it doesn't take too much time. I think it's great to have conversations on this kind of medium. So hopefully it takes it gains traction within the battalion because yeah. um, you know if they're just casually listening to something on a podcast whether they're working out or going for a walk or something it's better than nothing absolutely sir mm-hmm. yeah. i really love the focus that you you about mental spiritual wellness and and john you have some about the future intent of this podcast you have some well i was thinking first like one of the things that struck me meeting you was I've I've been with other company commanders and you know the priorities are war fighting and and that's appropriate and one of your the couple of your priorities were mental and spiritual wellness and I thought could you just talk about why those would be priorities for you yeah so mental physical spiritual resiliency and wellness is is by far the most important thing for me as a leader, as an officer, as a father, you know, as a husband, because that's the foundation of who we are. If you fast forward 50 years and you look back on your life, you can have a nice house, white picket fence, mm-hmm. you know, grown children who are successful, loving grandchildren, but none of that matters if you don't have uh, if you don't, if you can't look back on your life and be happy with who you are, the purpose of your life, and what you were really intended to to do here while you're here on this planet, and so the physical, spiritual, mental wellness to me is the most important part. Because if you don't know why you exist, then everything else doesn't matter. And so that's the priority that we have at this battalion is um, I can train Marines and sailors all day long. It's pretty easy. Take them to the field, train them, educate them. That's easy, but building character is, in my mind, the absolute most important thing we do here because these young Marines and sailors are growing up um, as we as we speak. They're you know they're here. The, for the formative years of their life, and if we miss this part, we're doing um, the institution that's service. And what I always say is, if we don't do this right, we're going to mortgage our future mm. because those young Marines and sailors will become staff NCOs, they'll become officers, senior officers. And if they don't have that that foundation or they're not grounded in character values, then we might be looking at an institution that looks very, very different from the ones that we grew up in. Yeah. So I just asked, how did you come to, let's say, your first aha moment with, I need to, my mind, I'm losing my mind a little bit. I'm a young Marine or a young person. What was a moment where, what did you, how did you come to this realization of, of mental fitness? And what, what was one of that, that kind of that moment in your life where I need to change my life or I need to do something because, man, I got to find that meaning and purpose in my life. 
That's a great question. Um, personally, I felt that when I first went to college, I went to the Virginia Military Institute because, frankly, I was a I was a punk kid in high school. I mean, you can ask my you can ask my parents. I was all over the place, right? Skipping school, uh, doing all the things that I shouldn't have been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but my lacrosse coach in high school went to VMI, and he kind of tuned me on into uh, the VMI lifestyle and this sense of purpose for one's existence. Because a lot of times when we were young, we're just going through the motions or just trying to get through the day, not understanding what, why we exist in this world. So he really opened my eyes a little bit. And I knew if I had followed my friends to a regular college, I'd probably fail out within the first year. And I knew that <laughs> because I had zero discipline, personal discipline growing up. And so I went to this school, and I remember this I remember this one instance where I realized for the first time, this is not about me. If you if you know anything about VMI, the first year is pretty tough. They call it the rat line. It's like sanctioned hazing. <laughs> but I remember the first couple of weeks, our upperclassmen, we called them cadre. They were the ones that were supposed to train us and mold us into kind of cadets. They would punish us routinely, individually, until the team finally grasped some task. And I remember having this epiphany while I was on my face doing the 500th push-up of that morning, because what they were doing was they would just come into the room, grab one of us, and say, come out here, You're you're paying the price for this other person's infraction. So they're doing this all morning long, and I realized, you know what? If we just all go out together, just all, all of us, everybody in the room, just go out together and just start pushing together, doing push-ups together, that shows unity, that shows collective you know, pain, and then we demonstrate to them that we don't care about our individual pain, we care about each other. And maybe that, that, that was the whole purpose of the exercise, right? That, that's what they were intending. So we're... I, I grab all of my roommates and we're like, let's go out. Let's just, just keep push, doing push-ups until they s- stop screaming at us. And we did like 10. They said, get up, get out of here. Wow. I'm like, oh, so that's the secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so from that, that point on in my early life, I realized that in order to get through life, you got to do it together. Mm-hmm. You got to forget about your own pain. You got to p- forget about your own suffering and do this together. Now, professionally, I will say, I didn't realize the importance of spiritual and mental fitness until I became a major. I, I had gone through personal issues uh, as a captain, as an officer, as a young lieutenant, but I didn't see it firsthand amongst the troops I led, the Marines I led. The first 10, 12 years of my career, we're going back and forth to combat. And I had always heard of, you know, PTS, PTSD, and that Marines and sailors suffering. But none of my Marines that I led ever exhibited any of those things. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't exist. We just never talked about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. It wasn't a thing that was programmed um, in, t- in the institution. So 
you know, if a Marine was struggling, we would just kind of talk to him and kind of wish them through their episode. When I checked into 8th Engineer Support Battalion, uh, 2nd Marine Logistics Group in Camp Leisure, North Carolina, I became the XO. And for the first six to eight months when I was the XO, we had suicide ideations nearly every week. Oh. It's a battalion the size of nearly the same size as for CB, it was about 1,200 Marines and sailors total, huge population. But there were suicide ideations, one or two or three a week. And um, that was the first time in my career where I thought, we've got something going on here. This is either we were ignoring it, you know, the first 10 years of my career, or something else is really going on. And so I... After that experience as, as a battalion XO, and, you know, we had <clears throat> suicide attempts. We had two suicides yeah. when I was at that unit. So when I, when, I, uh, when I was selected for command, I vowed to myself, okay, we got to make this a priority. We have to make this a priority because it's our, it's our responsibility and it's our obligation as leaders. I want to transition perhaps to maybe some thorns and roses during combat because you've seen combat you've been on the front lines you family you're away from family you're with the with the marines and some thorns and roses of this experience in combat because there are many of these young marines and sailors that we work with who've never seen the battlefield who've never been out there and i know it for me personally as well i'd like to hear if you if you're willing to share some some things out there that you know, the positives and the negatives and, and that experience, or at least one of the experiences or multiple you've had out there. Yeah, so I'll go back to my time, I guess, when I was here last as a company commander at First CEB. I had the honor of deploying with this battalion twice to Afghanistan. It was a pretty um, hairy time down in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Our battalion... Uh, that first deployment lost, f- I think we had four or five killed in action, twice that wounded, that first deployment. Um, that was tough for me to understand as, as I was in the, I was the assistant operations officer for that deployment. That was a tough experience just seeing that from the outside in. I wasn't on the ground with the Marines. It was a deployment that we um, that f- really focused me on what was happening. Having the memorial when we got back um, was seared into my mind what it exactly what we were there for as officers. And then when we came home, I was ordered to take a company, and that mm-hmm. at that point it was Mobilia Assault Company, which was a route clearance company. We had been training for about ten months. We were ordered to go back. Uh, about 11 months after we got back. So we had a really quick pre-deployment training plan. Um, I had three platoons of route clearance uh, platoons that we were quickly trying to retrain um, and get out the door. So we went back in the summer of 2012. There was one incident that that really seared into my mind why it's important to be a leader through trials. We had been given this mission 
and this was way up north in Helmand Province, near the Kajaki Dam. This route called 611 that went straight north through the Helmand River Valley all the way up to Kajaki had been basically cut off. U.S. forces hadn't been patrolling in that area for a couple months now. So we knew it was going to be dangerous to go back into areas that had been reoccupied basically by the Taliban. So I cobbled together two of my platoons. One of them, I also had an Afghan EOD or route clearance company with us attached to us that we had been partnering with the last couple months. And then following in trace of us was this Afghan brigade. We had been clearing, clearing, clearing. We hadn't found or hit an IED until we got to this cornfield that just opened up. And it was probably harvesting season, so it was probably, the corn stalks were probably, um, you know, two, two feet above my head. Mm. So they're pretty tall. And right against the right-hand side of the road was this sheer cliff, just this cliffside. And I remember thinking, this is a really dangerous place because yeah. we're trapped. There's no way to get out. So I told my guys to go slow, methodically. The lead vehicle, which was one of our route clearance vehicles, uh, we call it a Husky. It was just like a, a one-man uh, vehicle that had like this ground-penetrating radar that could detect anomalies in the ground. Boom. Oh, no. It hit an IED. And then the ambush started from, the, from within the cornfield. We started getting small arms, um, RPGs. It was classic L-shaped ambush. You block the force to the front, then you flank them from the, the side. Um, and it was, it was classic because they knew that cliff face that was off to our right was a blocking feature, yeah. right? We, there was nowhere to go. We couldn't push through because um, the one vehicle that we had that could detect IEDs was destroyed. Thankfully, the Marine was fine. And we tried to go back, and then one of our rear vehicles hit an IED. Oh. Um, so we were, we're, we're, we're stuck. And so uh, we started taking fire. All the machine guns on top of our vehicles started opening fire. We, we, we got positive ID of this team that was darting in and out of the cornfield. So I dismounted because for some reason um, my radio wasn't working to call in for like troops in contact and for air support because uh, we were pinned in. So I, I'm running back and forth to the vehicles trying to get to um, 2nd Platoon's lead vehicle, Lieutenant Krobrak. Ryan Krobrak was the platoon commander. And I banged on his hatch, and I was like, you got to call in fire support. Tell him, tell 1-7 where we're at. you got you got to bring in air support now. Right. Um, that was an odd firefight because it, it happened over the course of three or four hours, right? The Afghan commandos that were with me, they had handheld mortars. <laughs> I, was, I was basically clearing their fires. I want to say it was an F-15 that showed up. At that point, they couldn't. We couldn't figure out where the enemy had run to, so they came in and just started dropping flares. This F-15 would come in low and just drop flares, wow. just to scare the Taliban off, just to see if the the fire would dissipate. But here's what happened: 
literally in the middle of that firefight, I'm running back and forth with one of my interpreters because everywhere I went, he went with me because I, I was talking to some of the Afghans and trying to coordinate their activities. I had sent them into the cornfield to start clearing this uh, patch of buildings. So I thought that's where the fire was coming from. Out of, out of nowhere, this Afghan man came up carrying a little boy. Mm. It's about eight years old. I think it was about eight years old. He had been shot in the stomach. He comes up to us in the, in literally in the middle of a firefight, and, and he says, hey, can you help us? Oh. And so this little boy is just bleeding out right on the ground. Oh. And um, so we get the corpsman over here. They had, we had two corpsmen. They're frantically trying to save this boy's life, trying to stop the bleeding and trying to um, get an airway through, through his throat. But all the equipment they had were, were for, you know, adults, adults yeah. and not children. And so they couldn't fit one down his throat. Um, and this kid is just bleeding out. Mm. Just, I could see him losing color. Um, I vividly remember the two corpsmen who were just frantic. They were trying everything to save this kid's life. And... Finally, they were, you know, they were doing CPR. They were trying to stop the bleeding in his stomach, trying to get him some air, everything. And then um, once we realized the boy had died, I'll never forget this image. I saw the two corpsmen. I looked them in the eyes, and they looked utterly defeated Man. because all they wanted to do was save this boy's life, and they couldn't. They were they were so helpless, and I saw I'll never forget the look on their eyes. It was just this look of absolute defeat, and I felt helpless at that point too. I had prepared myself for our Marines and sailors getting killed because that's what we train right. for. You know, mentally I prepared myself. Okay, you'll probably lose um, one or two, and maybe a handful that get in, injured wounded but I never prepared myself to see a civilian let alone a child die in front of my eyes so once he expired the old man basically um, knelt down did a quick prayer wrapped him up and took him home and he was very matter-of-fact like he had seen this a dozen times before but one of my one of my interpreters had asked him like, "Hey, how did he get shot?" And he said, "During the firefight, the Taliban came into his house and shot his son on purpose." And I was very confused. Like, why would he do that? And he said, "Well, they had seen him be friendly to U.S. forces in the past, and so they, you know, what a revenge or intimidation or whatever, they just shot this boy." That has that episode has stuck with me for many, many, many years. I I had my one of my Marines was killed. Five of my five of our Marines were evac'd, uh, wounded. Came out early at the deployment because they were wounded. And I can accept, you know, the deaths and the wounded for Marines and sailors. But that little boy's death has, affects me to this day. And I bottled it up inside. When I got home, 
I can't even remember what time it was, but I remember unloading onto my wife, Grace, just telling her this whole experience. And just, I think I was probably sobbing, you know, and um, I needed to let go. I needed to let it out. Yeah. I had to. It was just, it was, just, it was oppressive. But even then, even after I had kind of let go a little bit with my wife, it was still affecting me. And I, unfortunately, I coped with alcohol, right? I coped a lot with alcohol. I remember Friday nights, my friends would contact me, hey, we're going out, let's get the wives together, let's go out to dinner, let's hang out. And I just kind of secluded myself, even from my family. We had a, um, our daughter at the time, Charlie, she was not deployment, she was probably about three years old when I got back. But I isolated myself, yeah. and I didn't do anything um, you know, crazy. I wasn't like going out and drinking and driving. I just sat on my couch every Friday night and just started drinking uh, whiskey. And um, Grace would go to sleep, and I would drink till, I don't know, 12, midnight, maybe 1 a.m., just to kind of cope with that. I did that for like months. I don't wow. even know how long it was. Grace obviously knew what was going on. That was that was hard. That lasted. The drinking didn't last too long. It was probably a couple months where I was doing that every single Friday night. And then I got a new job. I got orders to one MEF. I knew I had to knock it off. Yeah. So I stopped drinking as much. I still drank, but I wasn't, you know, drinking like half a bottle of whiskey or anything a night. Then I became a general's aide, and that put a stop to all of my, nearly all of my drinking, because that was, that was 24-7, that job. And then after that, I got orders to um, the recruit depot down in San Diego as a serious commander. That was the first time where I was able to disconnect a little bit from the, my profession, right? Because I come back from deployment. I went straight into training a new co company before I got orders to MEF. And then when I was at MEF, I was in exercise after exercise after exercise. Then I became a general's aide. So it was gain, it was day on stand. I couldn't not focus on work. Yeah. Um, so I was still like in the zone. And then once I got to the depot, it was really when I could decompress a little bit. And at that point, I think our marriage had been suffering considerably. Grace knew it, I knew it, because it, it was just relentless the time I was away from home. And then the depot, you know, I was there pretty much around the clock. I don't remember if there was a breaking point, but I remember my wife telling me, I need to go get help. Yeah. I have to go get help. I got to get through this, process this some somehow, some way. And so I reached out to the MFLAC that was out down at the depot at the regiment. She had me there for almost three hours. Wow. And she had me tell this story over and over and over and over again. And then she had me close my eyes and tell the story over and over and over again. And I was on her couch just in pieces. It worked. Yeah. It absolutely worked. 
from the, the moment I stepped out of that room, I felt like I had my life back and I was focused and I knew all I needed to do was talk to someone mm. to process it. So that was the first experience that I had um, that I had to kind of reconcile. Wow, thank you, sir, for sharing that with us. It's powerful, thank you. Wow. I can't even imagine the imagery. Like, how do you get that out of your head? You don't. It's, yeah. You can't unsee what you saw. But there's so many things trying to control that yourself through drinking and yeah. through other things. You were trying to control it yourself. You had a sense of helplessness, like the corpsman had the sense of helplessness, looking defeated. And then that carried on. It sounds like that carried on um, when you got stateside to the point of this being very oppressive. And you knew you need to let it go, but you didn't know how to let it go. But it became very oppressive uh, right down to the relationship and Grace, sounds like Grace really forced the hand on it so that oh, you, yeah. you need some help. Yeah. Our, our relationship is suffering. Um, when I think about that story, it's, and, and I, I could imagine listeners hearing this story, sir, and, and having imagery of maybe something that can be similar, but imagery of things that have happened in their life that um, they feel like they have to control or they they have to get rid of it or expunge it at some level. And the very origins of what we began talking about with, because this, this, while we're sitting here, this is your baby. I'm thinking of the idea of, of control, like when we were first talking together, all yeah. of us about the idea is we have to give up control somewhere. You can't control all of your life circumstances. You can control your attitudes, your beliefs, your perceptions, your behaviors, but you can't control certain kinds of things in life. And that's why I think it's really important to hear from you as the listeners will hear from you to understand your heart behind it, the intention behind this idea of giving up control whether you give up control to a higher power, to the universe, to somewhere, you give up control. Could you just speak a little bit about that point of view? That because this is yours, this is your imagination and your idea? Yeah. So I've thought a lot about why it took me so long to let go. And you talk about control there's an aspect in my mind associated with not letting go or having to control everything in your life because it's a to me it was a judgment it was a judgment issue I was afraid that people would judge me in a in a different way if I lost control if I let go if I was vulnerable if I showed that vulnerability I thought people would perceive me as weak. Mm. And as a Marine officer, hmm. you never want to admit that you're weak or vulnerable, right? And so we're programmed to behave like that. So there was, there was an aspect where I just didn't want to be judged in a way that I didn't want to control that perception. 
And I think that was the root of my inability to let go. And once I finally did, I finally let go. And then I shared that that story with those closest to me, my friends, my peers. And it was, I can't describe the feeling that I got from my friends, my family members, um, because there was no judgment. Yeah. There's no judgment whatsoever. It was just in my head. That feeling of being honest, having your closest friends and uh, peers embrace you for that experience and for those feelings is so powerful. That's why I'm still in. That's why I still wear this uniform because I can't, I can't walk away from an institution that gave me a new life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, you know, that's why we talk about this, this sense of control that young Marines and sailors have is they feel like they, they need to control everything in their life. And if things are starting to unravel, they tighten a little bit harder, a little bit longer. Yep. And then it becomes, it gets to a point where you just can't, you're going to explode. And a lot of people obviously cope with alcohol. They cope with other things, unhealthy ways. I still cope with those things, but I cope with it by just putting on my running shoes and running for, <laughs> for 15 life. miles, right? That's how I, that's how I unleash now. Um, so I'm hoping that this conversation and the follow-on conversations we have in this podcast really resonates because we've got to teach our young Marines and sailors that being vulnerable is absolutely okay because you're surrounded by brothers and sisters that love you and won't disown you because of your experiences. And that's why this here at the battalion, we embrace this family and this trust because if we don't have each other, there's no way we can get through a firefight on our own. Yeah, sir, I, I really appreciate what you spoke to regarding when I did tell those people who were closest to me in my life, when I finally let go of that stuff to them, what I, I think John and I, John and I have had similar experiences when we finally chose to just be honest, be vulnerable, communicate what was in our heart and our mind, and, and, and the response that you shared was the same response I got from those closest in my life. They didn't disown me. I didn't lose my job. They didn't kick me out of the community. They didn't ostracize me. They embraced me. And when you do what you just did, what you just shared with us to someone who cares about you the most, what happens is the relationship actually gets stronger there's a bond that's forged, and what's beautiful about it is, is now you're inviting them to share perhaps something that they've been holding on to as well. I've had that multiple times where I'll share something, and all of a sudden it gives them that, oh my gosh, I can also speak to this, and, and this person, I'm not the only one who's mm-hmm. experienced maybe similar things or different things, but I just love that at first you did alcohol, right? This is yeah. a very natural response. Oh, yeah. Temporary easy. fix, easy. Easy. Yeah. And then you got the guts to say, I'm going to go talk to an M Flack who I, maybe you've only met a few times, I'm not even sure. Never met her in my life. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you had, luckily, a, a good spouse, spouse who yeah. was, who also cares deeply for you and saw that. 
and then you just laid on a couch for hours. Then this release that showed up. And then what I loved about the next part of this is then you started talking to other people about it and the healing could start forming. Obviously, you can't unsee what you saw and it still in part haunts you, but it's turned you into perhaps the leader that you are today. It's helped you navigate this existence and now you're in your... You're a little bit older now, sir, if I'm not mistaken. You look better than John and myself, though, <laughs> with age. John looks good for his oh, age. Oh, I mean, John. Yeah, just, yeah. Just for no his wrinkles. Age. The wonderful slogan, for his age. <laughs> but I, but I, I hope and pray that this, this hearing it from you, sir, is, is such a gift to maybe a young Marine or sailor who's maybe coping with alcohol right now, maybe hasn't shared something, maybe, and they're like, you know what? My battalion commander, <laughs> who's, a, who's a Marine through and through, and he's as tough as they come, and he's out running 15 miles. That's minimum for you, sir. 15 is not a, I know you're doing 50 miles and all kinds of crazy things, but and now he's like, wait a minute. This gives me the opportunity to maybe share this. I'm not weak. I'm not. It is a, I'm a man because I might share this with somebody. This is what manliness looks like, mm-hmm. is having the courage <laughs> to say, I don't know how to fix this, man. I have no idea what's going on, and I'm miserable, and I'm ruining my relationships, and I just need to go talk to somebody. That's what courage looks like to me. I try to encourage all those Marines and sailors to come and talk to us. This is the most important thing, arguably, you could be doing for the rest of your life. And and they're like, what? No, I'm being, this took so much courage to come here and share that, and I, I love that you, we're willing to also share it with others as well. And even here on this podcast, I yeah. mean, that's... I'm thinking of that, the idea that you mentioned being so pervasive in our culture. And then when you add the Marine Corps culture on top of it, this this idea, and I, I don't want to offend or discredit or discount our female Marines, but the idea of masculinity and masculinity pervades our culture and the perception of what it is to be vulnerable or to cry is to to be weak and we hear these slogans men don't cry and we've been raised by our fathers men don't cry toughen up pull yourself up by your bootstraps and i think it's pervasive and then being indoctrinated into the marine corps then a lot of the uh, Marines say, it's not okay. I can't tell my story. It's not safe. If I do it, if I'm vulnerable, I'm going to be weak. And we see this with lots of couples that they can't share with their, their partners, um, or you can't share some of these experiences. And as you said, it's like the judgment was in my head. The judgment is in the culture that gets into our head. And then we have the masculine discourse telling us you cannot say a word. You better not say a word because you're going to be judged harshly. And you had to push back on all of that. Yeah, there's, a, there's an absolute distinction in my mind about ignoring a life circumstance or, or an incident and embracing it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people try to ignore it or, or medicate their way out of it. Um, I don't regret anything that has happened to me. Um, I made a lot of mistakes when I was a teenager, a lot. Um, I made a lot of mistakes in college. I made a lot of mistakes as a Marine officer. And then the crap that life 
places on top of you. Your mother or father dies of cancer, your brother or sister dies of cancer, someone gets in a car accident, passes away unexpectedly, or you see a, a young boy bleed to death in Afghanistan. Those things, to me, aren't something we should be ashamed of. They're our life experience, and we have to embrace it, and we have to accept it, and we don't and, and that's the distinction for me is you can't ignore it. And it's not a sign of weakness if you if you want to feel vulnerable. If, if you understand that this is who I am now and this is how I become stronger and more resilient to other things because I finally, for the first time, I've embraced it, I've accepted it. This is my life's journey. If we ignore it, if we don't talk about it, if we suppress it, and it prevents us from growing. Yeah. That's exactly what we want our Marines and sailors to do, is to grow through these experiences instead of hiding behind it. It should convict us to be better people. You know, the second combat-related experience that I had was when I lost my first Marine. I remember this vividly. I was on Camp Leatherneck. Our company, CP, was on Leatherneck. We had sent platoons all over. One of my platoons, first platoon, had been clearing um, down into a river valley called Shurake. There was a Marsoc unit that was operating in this place called Village Stability Platform Shurake. It was in the green zone down in the river valley. They had been um, partnering with some Afghan local police. But their compound, their patrol base, had been cut off. The only route out... Uh, really going west, upside this, up up through these hills, had been seeded with IEDs. So they're, essentially their back door was closed off, and they couldn't get resupplied. CH-53s would come in every few days and drop supplies, but that was starting to get untenable because they kept getting shot at, the helicopters. So they asked us to go down and clear a, a route down into the patrol base to get some of the resupplies. But we told them, look... Once we clear, you got to position some forces along this route so that they don't get, you know, IEDs don't get relayed by the Taliban when you're when you have your backs, you know, eyes turned to the rear. We had gone down. I had I had sent actually second platoon down there. They had cleared and they had encountered probably a dozen IEDs and they were clearing them methodically, but they also destroyed a bunch of their vehicles. They destroyed both of their route clearance detection vehicles. They destroyed the arm, uh, the interrogating arm on one of their Buffalo vehicles. Um, they had robots, and they had dogs, and they had metal detectors left. And I remember the uh, platoon commander sending me a message on BFT saying, like, hey, we're not mission capable. We can't clear anymore. And I wrote back, you are absolutely mission capable. You still have your metal detectors and you have your dogs. Like, you got to clear. I knew what he was thinking. He's like, this company commander doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I'm here on the ground telling him I can't go any further. And I'm being ordered by some guy <laughs> sipping a cup of coffee in the CP saying, you will go. Um, I knew what they were capable of because we had trained so hard. Um, so they went. And they started encountering anti-personnel IEDs, like these little five-pounders that would 
they they call them toe poppers, um, but they were like in little glass jars. They started finding those everywhere, and I was like, I'm sitting in the CP with my first sergeant and my XO, like crossing our fingers, like any minute Please now, don't. Yeah. we're gonna see a flash message. You know, someone had stepped on one, but they finally made it through, cleared the path for the vehicles to come in and resupply that position. Well, two weeks later, we get the same request, and I'm frustrated. I'm like, hey. Theoretically, you guys would have picketed the road so that this wouldn't happen again, so that Taliban wouldn't come in to in, in your rear and relay these IDs, but they didn't do it. So I knew that we were going to have to clear again, and there's probably twice as many IDs. Well, I sent 1st Platoon down there this time. Um, this time they took a bulldozer, an MCT, and instead of just clearing the existing trail, they were just going to make a new one like out of nowhere just get bulldoze a combat trail down to that position uh, I wasn't on that mission um, but they had encountered some heavy resistance they started taking fire um, and one of the uh, MRAPs hit a pretty massive ID I think it was like a 80 pounder or maybe a 120 oh, wow. pounder uh, Alec Terwiski was the turret gunner and he's he's six Two six one six two two hundred and fifteen pounds slick. So he was wearing all of his body armor. So he's probably easily two fifty. That IED lit up right underneath him, mm. and he was thrown fifty feet into the air, killed instantly. Um, and I had I you know that platoon was on that mission. I was um, probably running to a meeting or coming back from a meeting on Leatherneck and my first sergeant was waiting for me outside of the the hooch there and he had this grave look on his face and I was like oh man something happened he said Sir Alec Torsky was just killed by an IED I felt devastated once again as a marine marine leader I was I was devastated because I had sent them on that mission and I knew that it, this one was going to be extra risky and the the feelings of guilt just subsumed me about like what didn't I do what what didn't I do to better equip them better resource them to do this mission more effectively um, but I had to keep it together right because we still had to send another platoon out there to go salvage whatever was going on still finish the mission and draw everyone back I kept it together until I got to my room that night, late that night, and my heart was in pieces. It was it was broken. It was shattered. My roommate, um, one of my best friends now, Rob Gerbracht, um, he was the engineer support company commander. We were roommates together, and that night he he put my soul back together because I was sh just sharing with him you know, all the guilt and shame that I felt as an officer, as a company commander, letting that happen. I remember he eloquently told me, look, Marine officers have to be prepared to send those Marines and sailors that they love to their death. Mm. Stop, period, and right there. Like, you, if you want to be a good officer, you have to have the courage to send um, your Marines to their death. And that kind of revived me and I'll never forget that night because if it wasn't for him again this like collective yeah. ownership he owned that problem too like he was absolutely was adamant that you know 
It was everyone's failure, not just mine. That was powerful. That's another example of why I can't walk away from this organization. And this, you don't have to have these combat experiences to feel this, have this feeling of morale, camaraderie, and pride in an institution. If you're going through a hard, hard day, and someone comes up to you and just lifts you up, like you owe them something. So yeah, that's the second example where this 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 aspect of brotherhood and sisterhood um, in trials helped me out. Another powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. I'm thinking about life situations that our Marines and sailors might encounter that might seem just as powerful, but don't have the backing of your story, but might seem just as powerful to them in many life situations. And I was wondering, like, do you, what do you believe are, are situations, life situations that might be difficult to control for Marines and sailors that should, would they would be better off to give to a higher power or source or the universe or whatever, or as you said before, just relationally be in relationship with others and not try to control it. What kind of life situations would you believe are, that Marines and sailors are facing that are difficult to control, but you would encourage them to give it up, give that control up? That's easy. Everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. I know that's a, like, it's like a flippant answer, but everything. Because, you know, I, t- I talk about my two combat experiences, but that's not the only two th- circumstances in my life that have affected me. Everyone's pain is relative to their circumstance, right? I mean, seeing their, knowing one of their friends that got um, hit by a car in a motorcycle accident, that's just as painful as what I went through losing one of my Marines. I can't qualify or make any judgments on somebody's pain. It's all relative to them. So the answer to that question is everything. You have to give everything over to a higher power. I remember 20 years ago, probably, I was listening to this interview. Tom Brokaw was on this panel of experts. And I think the the topic of the the panel was like religious extremism, right? And... um, the, the topic came down to like fundamentalists, people who are certain that their way is the only yeah. way for salvation. And this, um, I forget who it was, he was an academic, he basically said, you know, those fundamentalists um, are dead wrong because f- religion and faith, faith, the whole definition of faith is like you don't know exactly. certainty, but you're going to give your faith into a higher being or a spiritual person or thing um, in the hopes that that's the right way. And so I feel like that answer to that question is you have to give everything over because no one has the certainty. No one has the answer. And so if people are struggling with any manner of things, you have to have faith that at the end of the road, you will get to a better place. But you have to be able to relinquish that control and just give over your faith and belief that um, you will 
find redemption. You will find salvation. You will find happiness and peace with whatever you're suffering with. You know, Marines and sailors can they can complain about, you know, I didn't I joined the Marine Corps to do something else. I thought it was going to be something different than this. Right. That's one ex- one, you know, example. The other extreme is some kind of traumatic experience, you know. But all of that qualifies as like disenfranchisement and pain. Mm-hmm. And so you have to just let go. It's not not to say you don't have goals and objectives in mind, but you have to just say if I trust the system, if I trust my leaders, if I trust myself, if I have confidence in myself and I have shared experiences with my peers, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I like that idea of everything. You know, we have to, even though you're like, this is a compliment, it's the absolute truth on that matter. I mean, for example, we can never choose the circumstances to which we were born to, right? How I grew up, I was just born, two people chose to, make love and all of a sudden hopefully it was love and not lust <laughs> and then we showed up there regardless you Reg- showed up you're just there and mm-hmm. and we can't really choose that circumstance but like you're saying on a certain level I have to give okay all these things are happening to me some of this I'm a participant in obviously I do have some choice on on how I I can make goals I can maybe I'm leaving when I'm 18 because I can't stand this circumstance and all these other types of things. But on the one hand, you have to make the best of it that you can in the circumstances that you don't choose. You did not choose, sir, to have that Marine yeah. uh, die. That yeah. was, that was you maybe you had no clue when you joined the Marine Corps that you'd be in that moment at that time. But then the circumstance showed up. You are the leader of this battalion. You, you have to make some decisions. And like your good friend said, you're going to have to choose some really difficult things. And then after you've, whether you made a mistake or didn't make, make a mistake, that's, you know, that's to the universe, that's to God, and then attaching to yourself to that higher entities. I'm trying to do the best I can in the circumstances that I did not choose. Yeah. And that's my gift. That's my hope. That's, I'm going to give that to a higher entity, a higher power, something bigger than myself, because I don't know. Right. I don't like, like Tom brought up that whole interview. Yeah, religious extremism is that very fact that I know better than you know, and blah blah blah, and it turns into this war and everything else. But I, I really appreciate what you said that you give everything to it, and you make goals, you make plans, you make. But there are outside influences, outside circumstances that you cannot determine. Yeah, and then I will give that to a higher entity, a higher power to j- make those judgments, or to at least in my case, to the God that I believe in. He's, he or they or she is going to make it all right in the end somehow. And I'm not sure what that means completely, but I'm going to do the best I can in the circumstances that I did not choose. And I know what the best is for me. I know I can give my time, energies, and talents to the person sitting next to me and make their life a little bit better and teach them, mentor them, be their friend, invite them, do all those little things that that build that camaraderie, that build that friendship, that build a good <laughs> working s- system or structure. Every job, every entity has things that are going to be imposed upon you. Yeah. And and I'm giving all those uncontrollable things to the universe to a god that's bigger than myself and the things I can control within the circum- this this conversation. I'm going to do the best I can to you, sir, to John, to our amazing producer, 
in the time that we have, and we're going to share that experience, and I can do that at least. But I never chose to be five foot six. I wanted to be LeBron James. <laughs> That's my choice. That's you know, but it didn't happen. But I can give, right? I can make judgment calls that may lead to some consequences, but that. But man, that's the power that's been entrusted to me, to you, to John. We, we're just kind of trying to figure it out together. Yeah, <laughs> that's so. That's the other part of hope, is the sense of grace, that whatever mistake you make, and no one is done making mistakes, right? We're, I'm going to make a mistake as soon as I get back to my office. Yes. You know, <laughs> the the grace part is that no one's going to judge you. No one, everyone's gonna, you're going to be forgiven. Yes. I'm not talking from like just a necessarily a religious aspect, but no one cares if you're going to make a mistake because everybody else is making the same mistakes. It's that, that hope of getting to a better place. Is, there's a key component of this, which is grace. It's knowing that no matter how many times you fail, people are still going to love you. That's, what keeps this world going I think um, and as you said like the relationships are really everything and trusting in those relationships and trusting that you can you can in the community you can talk to people and you have to trust that your community is not going to shame you and we have these experiences of people that we do life if we try to do life with individualism, we're going to suffer. When we do life with other people, we're not going to suffer. I mean, there is, is suffering in community, but ultimately we do, we do life with other people. And I'm thinking of the, just all of the values and virtues you've talked about with, you might not have even known, I've, I've just been jotting down some ideas, faith, trust, hope, and grace. Those are values and virtues that we might learn through life and by our lived experience, and we might adopt those into our life. But I'm thinking about how important faith, trust, hope, and grace are to counter the idea of trying to control. We're trying to control the universe. We're trying to control all of our circumstances. If we give those up, part of the, you know, a huge antonym to control is trust and faith. As you said, it's like when you have faith and trust, you can give that up. You can, you can turn it over successfully. And we hope for the best. We really truly hope for the best. But those really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking in, in crafting a deliberate message, particularly to control, for our listening audience in crafting a deliberate message, what do you see as problematic with trying to control all of your life circumstances? I know you mentioned it, but just as we begin to wrap up here, what do you see as problematic as trying to control everything in your life? If you try to control every single aspect of your life, I mean, it's an impossibility. I don't think we're equipped mentally or physically to control the universe that surrounds us. I can't control what happens to me when I walk out of this building. So it's, it's, I think it's a moot 
effort when you want to control how people treat you, when you want to control what, you know, you know, in in our context, how you're trained, when you're trained, Mm -hmm. why you're Mm -hmm. trained. You can't control these things. You just have to accept them as they come. You can certainly steer, try to steer them in a different way and shape the environment to where you think you could benefit. I don't think any one of us can control anything. I, I'll give you a perfect example. All right. So this past week, I had a conversation with one of my closest mentors um, who I revere. And he told me this story. He was a battalion commander. We had just deployed to Afghanistan. The battalion had suffered its first killed in action. And before you go forward, you, you fill out the isoprep, you know, the isolated personnel kind of report where if you get c- captured and they find you, they can identify you with some of these distinguishing things. So you, everybody has to fill this out, like where you were born, what tattoos you have, what color eyes you have. Come to find out, the battalion hadn't done um, some of these. And when they tried to pull up that one Marine who was killed, his isoprep didn't exist. So he's furious, right? He, he sends a note to all the company commanders, like, you've got two weeks to get the entire, everyone who's missing an isoprep, you will finish it in two weeks. Well, two weeks comes around and no one does it. Maybe like a few of them get updated. So he's furious, and he sends another note to the company commander. It's like, now you've got 48 hours or else. This, this is how he described his feelings or his, his, his actions. You have 48 hours or else something's going to happen. There will be consequences, right? And um, 48 hours comes and nothing. Oh, my goodness. And so he just – he said at that point he realized in his career, like, you can't control – what people do you can influence what people do but you'll never be able to control i can look chaps straight in the eye and say you will drive 55 miles an hour home <laughs> my car's too fast for that sir we all know, <laughs> yeah we all know that's not gonna <laughs> unless i put like you know some kind of speed regulator on his car governor he's not gonna do it yeah no matter how many times i plead with him it's like please don't drink and drive. Some 18-year-old who, you know, gets a text message from a girl out in town. Yeah. Come meet me. All right. Let's go. He's already been drinking. You know, it's it's just like you can shape the environment. You can try to influence their behavior, but you can't ever control it. So I, maybe that's a poor example of an ex, uh, answer to your question, but I don't think we can control anything. But influence is powerful, yeah. right? Yeah. Because they're going to have to convince themselves not to drive out to that cute girl at the age of 18 yeah. over the speed limit or with yeah. alcohol. I mean, that doesn't mean we can't try. Like, obviously, oh, we have an obligation to lead, train, and educate Marines. And so yeah. from making those bad judgment calls, but at the end of the day, it's the character mm-hmm. that betrays your judgment. So we have an obligation to build character so they don't make those bad choices but at the end of the day some of them will still make those bad choices and i try not to lose sleep over it although i still do sure <laughs> but sure um it's hard it's hard well i mean we all have children here i i have three yeah and obviously i'm in a constant constant mentoring role 
just like me when I was a teenager, sir. I'm glad you're not the only deviant during their teenage years here. My poor parents had to deal with my nonsense. I never got caught. Yeah, that's the problem. I did get caught. I was not as good as you, sir, at... Uh, uh, hiding, maybe that's why you're a Marine. You were able to camouflage better than <laughs> All myself. of mine happened before I was 18. My record was white <laughs> when I white became clean, <laughs> 18. But, but, but at the same time, it is our obligation and, and our joy sometimes to mentor, to teach. To, yeah. But now closing, I, I think this leads really well into this idea of if there's just one idea, one thought, one advice you could give a young Marine or sailor, even an older Marine or sailor like myself, with all your years of experience, with your life story, some of it that you've shared with us, if that could stick in their brain, what what do you think it would be, sir? I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but... If, if you talk about control. If I could control every 18-year-old, <laughs> it's this. It is, it is trust us. Trust us. There is not a single person in this battalion that wants to intentionally do someone else harm. It doesn't exist. There might be periods where someone just, you know, just an ass to you just because they make them feel better. But nobody is going to do anything to intentionally, permanently, you know, harm you in any way. Trust us, the leadership, the chain of command, the NCOs, the staff NCOs, officers. Like, let go of all these things that are pre- preventing you from trusting one another. Mm-hmm. There's so many Marines that we encounter on a daily basis who come from really horrible backgrounds. You know, they were orphans or in foster care or they had broken homes. And just these circumstances have put so much of a shield yeah. that's just defense mechanism where they've just layers and layers of protection. And they refuse to trust anyone. They they they, they navigate this tightrope. That's the only thing that they know how to do is navigate this tightrope and fend off anyone who even attempts to throw them off. Yeah. Right. And um, those are the Marines and sailors that I worry about the most because um, not just from like a personal standpoint, but from a warfighting perspective, like. If we're in a fighting hole and rounds are going over your head, you got to let go. Yeah. You got to trust the person next to you with everything you have. Your whole life is in someone else's hands and vice versa. Yeah. So if there's one thing that I could ask of, influence, teach is just trust is so critical to what we do here where it's taking care of one another in the middle of the night at the smoke pit or an NCO dragging a PFC up First Lawrence Hill, or in 29 Palms going through range 400 and you're scared out of your mind because you've never heard live fire going on. Trust is so powerful. That's my biggest wish is that um, just let go, let go of control and just trust one another. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Well, this has been an absolute honor, John. What a treat. <laughs> what an honor and a treat to just sit down with you. It's like being with an old sage. In yeah, the room. exactly. <laughs> well, we always sit down once a week, and it's always like a therapy session for me. Yeah. This was fantastic. 
That's well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again, thank sir, you, sir, and for spearheading this and being willing, open, and honest to discuss your some of the stories you shared with us. And we're looking forward to the next Mariner Sailor who's going to yeah. join us here on this podcast and to hear from them as well. And thanks for the gift of your time, the gift of, of you as an individual and a leader, and, and sharing your story with John and I. What a what a treat. What a joy. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, I, Thank you, sir. I will, I will say, you know, I wouldn't be able to effectively lead this battalion if it weren't for you guys. Reinforcing everyone's efforts and just being genuine with your care. So that's, that's going to pay off for sure. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Now, now I can go home a uh, happier man, and I'll get home and get humbled again by my children. So <laughs> At 55 miles an hour. At 55 miles an hour. All right. Thank you, sir. God bless yes, sir. you. Thank you. This podcast is for education purposes only. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the United States Marine Corps, United States Navy, or any other Department of Defense entity. The material and information presented here is for general information only.